Welcome to the second season of We Are All Africans. A safe space for Africans with a wide range of backgrounds to discuss their being in a globalized world. I'm Saren Coley. Please take a seat and listen. What's your name and what does it mean? My first name is Faith, middle name Danielle, and last name Toran. Faith. First, I guess I'll begin with what it means to me, and then I'll go into how it's defined uh, based in the context of like language and where it comes from, the origin of the name. Faith, to me, it's a heavy name. I'll start there. It's a heavy name. It feels like it comes with the weight of really trusting and being very optimistic about life, about people, about interactions, about experience. And I don't think we naturally, considering like all of the conflict and chaos that's happening in the world, it's not such a natural instinct to want to trust and want to be positive or optimistic all of the time. So for me, it's a constant reminder. My name is a constant reminder to really sort of err on the side of uh, optimism and really just believe in the possibility of something good and pleasant arriving. When I looked it up, I was like, oh, how is it defined? Automatically, I thought like biblical context, but it actually was like popularized by Puritans in the 17th century. And basically it comes from the Latin word uh, fidere, and it means to trust. So it's so interesting that my first feeling about my name really aligns with how it has been defined and to trust. That's a big responsibility. And I think I do hold that dear trusting in the possibility of the good in the world, the beauty and the peace. And so like Danielle is just from the Hebrew context, God is my judge, which is also very interesting to me because I think when we identify ourselves, how we orient ourselves in the world, we should be comfortable enough or secure enough, I think, to really be that own judge of our own character, our own person. So when I read it and it's like, God is my judge, I realize myself as part and parcel of like everything that is creation. So it gives me the responsibility, the accountability, and yeah, the role to be able to judge myself and orient myself in the world that is chaotic, but I can be oriented into that world where I can be peace and I can trust in like how I experience the world with myself and with others. And then lastly, uh, Toran, and its name comes from like Irish descent. And based what I found, it was like refers to like a watchtower or some kind of hills in Northern Ireland. So then I look at my entire name and I'm just like Puritans, Hebrew context, and then like Irish. And I'm just like, geez, my parents really did a number, you know, but it's in the African-American context. I sort of understand how they arrived upon these names. But then I started to think a little bit more of like, okay, what does faith mean in how we say it in in a um, local language in Burkina? And when I lived in Burkina Faso in 2013 to 2015, Um, my community gave me a name, but it was the name for faith in the local language of More. It was Tambo, Tambo. I hope I'm pronouncing it right. (laughs) And so that was so nice to know that even though in the U.S., faith or in that context, it's like this English name, but it also is transferred in other languages and other contexts. 
and it made me situate myself differently. Like I am also, I am faith, but I also am Tambo and I'm also Imani and I can also be, and it makes you feel really a part of this world in a big way that you can, you're a part of it all and not just situated in one place. Do you know who chose your name? So briefly, my father gave me the first name Faith and my mother chose the middle name Danielle. She just liked the middle name Danielle. So my mother, she gave birth to me at six months. So I was three months premature. They were on a military base in uh, North Carolina. They were sort of anticipating not really a good outcome. And then I was like here with really zero health problems. I mean, they had to put me in a little incubator and all of that, but like I was well. And so my father was the one who said we should name her Faith. We'll call her Faith. Do you know who your ancestors are? So that's a very difficult question, a question that I've been asking myself for a really long time. As far as I can date back, based on my research, is only when slavery or the enslavement of African and African-American people in the U.S., which was 17th century, 18th century. And so on my mother's side, her father's mother, so that my great great-grandmother, was one generation after slavery was said to be abolished. And (laughs) she was a sharecropper, so lived on a plantation and worked. So that's the only trace I have. And then there's no trace before. But we know that with the slave trade and the enslavement of African and African-American people that we directly came from the continent. I so wish there was some way to trace it, but I think that's the problem. Sometimes, I guess, with systems of oppression, they hide information that is liberating. They hide information that is healing. And so, unfortunately, I don't know. And then on my mother's side, her mother's mother, so my great-grandmother, she was raised by her aunt, who was Dutch. There's like really not any traces of who her mother was. So it's a very like lost history. And I think I found myself over the last nine years of my life in search of my identity or what does it feel like to situate yourself in a world where you have no traces of where you're really from. And so that lack of being connected to self and to my ancestors brought me to the continent in 2013. And I think, yes, for work, but I think in my heart, it was in search of What does it feel like to belong somewhere? We know that we're from here as African-Americans. Some accept that fact, some don't. But there's a knowing that that is where you're from. But there is a lack of connection on the part of like understanding African culture, which is very diverse. And I mean, if you look at all the different countries in Africa, it's very diverse. You can't generalize it at all. And so it makes it even more complex trying to understand who you are. (laughs) You said nine years ago. So what happened nine years ago? So I was graduating from Spelman College in 2013, and I decided to join the Peace Corps. And I was sent to why I chose to accept the position in Burkina Faso. And so what was going on for me emotionally at that time was this deep longing for home. And so I grew up with 10 siblings. We're 11. So life wasn't really easy. And so... I didn't run away from home. I grew up in Erie, Pennsylvania. 
I didn't run away from home. I was running to home because I didn't feel like I had that. Yeah, I didn't experience that so much in those years before going to college. So I was like, I'm looking for, I know you can choose family, choose community. Let me just search for home and define what that looks like for me and orient myself in that. And maybe I will feel better emotionally. I mean, I felt strong and powerful and everything I did, I was very intelligent, a part of so many different organizations. And on that front, I was very confident and secure in my ability, in my power. But I think there's this emotional power inside all of us that is so much attached with like home and identity and origin. And it's not so much of always finding it and, you know, having some document that says this, this, this. But if you don't find peace with it, then you'll never find peace in yourself. And so I felt just this conflict, this emotional conflict happening or stirring for a very long time. So when I went to Spelman, I was like, yeah, I'm surrounded by all black girls. Like, I'm going to feel like black. I'm going to feel black for the first time in my life because growing up, I never really felt black or black enough. So Spelman was like a very important part of my journey to finding self and finding peace as a black woman. And so I was working for a state representative and I was really just sort of over the political sphere. And I was just like, oh, this is just very slow progress. And I just want to put me in a place where I have to be vulnerable And all of these accolades and accomplishments, they really don't hold the same weight. Like I just wanted to be in community. And I think that's what led me to Burkina. Like I'm going to be in some village. Yes, it's going to be difficult and probably all these challenges at first, but I want to know what it feels like to be home. You said that you never really felt black or black enough. Why? I would first have to say it starts with education. I began my education, me and my older sister, in preschool. So we started off in Catholic school. We also went to Christian school. And I was just surrounded by a bunch of people that didn't look like me. I mean, even we went to church. We grew up in a Christian household, but we weren't really allowed to sort of like hang out with our family that much. So there was no reinforcement of what it means to be Black. And then you see all of this negativity that people try to attach to the word Black, which has nothing to do with origin or culture or identity. It has more to do with people's behavior based on their experiences. But that's a whole nother debate. Anyway, because of that, how people think of the word Black and the negative connotations that come with that, we weren't really allowed to hang out with other Black people so much. I felt in this bubble where... Nothing was really reinforced about Black culture or what it meant to be Black. I mean, we were educated well on the world. I mean, I had a very global perspective. I knew everything about so many different countries, but I didn't know anything really about myself. So how were your first month in rural Burkina Faso? First, I'm just going to say emotionally, emotionally heavy. I like to choose my words carefully because after experiencing something, I think you can really speak to the situation. And when you think of the first emotions, you sort of sometimes attach them to negative words that carry negative connotations. And I don't want to do that because my experience in Burkina was the most profound experience I've ever had in life, the most humbling one also. So no, it was just, it was very shocking. 
First, I was like, what am I doing here? Do I even belong here? I still feel out of place. Am I accepted? You're in the village. You don't know the local language really well. I mean, you can greet people, but that's about it. And it's like, okay, I do feel okay here, like situated in this place, but I am shocked also being here. So there was just like this gray area where you're like, we'll see what happens. But wow. <laughs> what has shocked you most? I would say the first thing that was shocking was that like, how does this place exist in this state, in this condition? Because I mean, I was in rural Burkina in the north. Quite honestly, there wasn't a local market. It was extreme poverty. And that shocked me. It hurt me at the same time because I'm coming from Atlanta or I'm coming from the U.S. And I'm like... How in the heck can this exist at the same time period? These are two different worlds. And so I was really curious about how did this world become this rural village in Burkina? How did it become this way? Who did this to Burkina? So I automatically was angry, which made me angry about like my American side or my Western side, which I just contextualize Western culture as I mean, it has a very oppressive history. And so I was mad about being situated in the West somehow with my identity. And then really sad that I didn't have enough knowledge to really relate or to communicate more in those initial stages with the community in Burkina. And so, yeah, there was just a ton of emotions. But I think most it was just anger because I thought then of my history and I'm like, okay, yes, my great grandmother was a sharecropper. So if our boat didn't leave, would I be here in Burkina? Where would I be? And would this be a reality for me? So I automatically, I'm a very empathetic person. I automatically was like, I could see this is my reality too. I did not want to remove myself from that. I was like, this is a part of me. It felt very real. And I didn't want to be an outsider looking in. I really just grabbed a hold to that reality. And I was like, okay, for the next two years, this is me too. The experience in Burkina, how did I really become a part of that community? And how did I really become a part of that reality? I think it really starts from an emotional platform. The lessons I learned just by observing and being with people in community. I learned how to care, be nurturing. I learned how to share myself, things I had, whether it be food. I learned to be present. I'm very introverted, so I don't really always really like to be around people. It causes me like a little bit of anxiety sometimes. And so the mothers and the townsies of the village would knock on my door every morning before the call of prayer. I lived in a Muslim village and it's like four o'clock in the morning and I'm like, I'm so tired. But that became something I really looked forward to. Someone cares about me. And so I learned to do the same thing, to check on people. In the beginning, I really learned to be in community. So I would say those first six months, it was all about that emotional stability, finding an emotional grounding and learning those things that were deep inside of me that I maybe just haven't activated living in the U.S. because nothing calls for you to be in community. Sometimes it does, but during my experience, I wasn't really called to be in community in the same way, in the way of it being a commitment and it being consistent. Midway through my experience in Burkina, it was quite challenging because another volunteer, a Caucasian volunteer, came to my village and my community, they gave her the seed, this chair to sit in, and then they told me to sit on the ground. Down, and I was really sad about it because I didn't understand it at first. I was like, that's sort of weird. I feel like now I'm orphaned in a way, like I'm below this person. Why are we looking up to this person? Very strange dynamic. After that, I spoke with some people in my village and I was like, why 
I was really frustrated and I always expressed my frustration in a real way. I didn't want to be a people pleaser. I wanted to be a part of something. And I think you have to show up as yourself respectfully, but you have to show up as yourself. And I was like, I'm just really frustrated about this. I don't understand why I had to sit on the floor. It really felt like you just put me beneath this person. And they were like, we had you sit on the floor because you're a part of us. This is a place where we sit. And so we wouldn't let anyone else sit here. And so it was an honor to like allow you to sit here. And that shocked me because that was a moment of misunderstanding on my part. But then from that misunderstanding, from my honesty, whether it has been like emotional or not, I was like, okay, I am starting to feel accepted. Like someone has affirmed a place in this space and context. And then fast forward almost to the end of my mission, I was traveling around Burkina with another African-American friend. We have different skin complexions. So we were in this uh, town and we were talking to some people from Burkina. And this guy says, she's not black like us, points to me and says to my friend, she's not black like us. And that hurt because I was like, what does that mean? Like, where are you from? I would get that question off. And when you don't have a response, everyone's sort of puzzled. Why don't you know where you're from? And you explain the history, which some people are aware of, some people aren't. They still, the next question that comes, well, why didn't your grandparents, great grandparents teach you the language? And you're like, what language? (laughs) We didn't get receipts when we got off the boat. I'm sorry. There is no receipt. They couldn't have taught me. I don't know. And so then people situate you in the continent. They say, oh, because of the complexion of your skin or the way you talk, you're probably from Ethiopia. And so I would get that a lot. And it's like, well, what if I'm not from Ethiopia? You can't tell me like I'm allowed to search for this place and I'm allowed to decide. So it was like quite a battle. I felt both accepted and orphaned at the same time during my two years. I mean, I've worked and lived in Burkina, Guinea, and now Cameroon, and I've traveled a lot around West Africa. I do feel this really close connection. It's not something I even understand when I see nomadic people. I don't know. It's almost, it's something I feel in my body. And so since I've traveled for the last, since 2013, like I'm going to go back to the U.S. this year, but since 2013, I've lived all over the world. And so there's something in my heart that is so nomadic. And I wonder how much that has to do with the origin of who I am, because it's a calling to me out in my heart to move. I'm not very strategic about it. Like, oh, I want to travel the world and do this and do No, it's like, I want to live places. And then I know when it's time to leave that place and there's somewhere else I have to go. So I'm guided by something internally, something that's really true to the nature of who I am and not so much logic at all. It's like, no, we've got to move now. And every place I've been in, it feels like I'm supposed to be there. And when it's time to leave, I'm supposed to leave. It's really interesting. Is there a nexus between that, how I have moved around in the world and origin, like where I'm from? You said that you come from a military background, so you may have moved around a lot. So is moving around your normal? Yeah, we moved a lot. It's my normal. And the interesting thing that I witnessed with my own eyes about nomadic people, it's there isn't this like moving without uh, intention. And when you do, what you see is when they do place roots, I think everywhere nomadic people go, they place roots and it makes you really a part of something way bigger than one place. And I think that's special. They didn't just like, oh, we're just going to set up a tent. We're just here for two days camping or something. No, we are going to tend the land. We're going to have our cattle. We're going to be a part of this place for as long as we're here. And then we're going to go. But we will always be a part of this place. 
I try to do the same thing everywhere I am. I mean, now these observations and connections are like shocking. I'm like, wow, when I'm in a place, I have to establish some kind of home there. It's a feeling, but it's like, I am here. This is home for now. Yes, I will go somewhere else, but Burkina will always be home. Guinea will have always been, always home. Cameroon, same thing. Haiti, same thing. U.S., same thing. At this stage in my life, I am grappling with, okay, what is the next step in my journey to really... I mean, I've come to a certain peace and acceptance of, yes, I can find home and is it emotion and I take courage and I learn humility from Burkina and that's what makes me African. I learned how to be in community, how to be at peace, how to be still, how to interact with others from Guinea. So all of these experiences I've had from living in different African countries have really, in my mind, created my identity of what it means to be African. But I'm at a stage of like, okay, can we get to the bottom of like, are there any questions to be answered? at this point. How does one do that? I know they have the test. A lot of people do the ancestry test. I'm like back and forth on that. First of all, because (laughs) you have to pay. And I find that problematic. Like you just stole people, dumped half of them in the ocean, forced us to be somewhere. You don't let us identify in this place because we're always considered African-American. And as Dubois mentions, the devil consciousness, you're not situated really anywhere. So I'm angry about that. I think it's a righteous anger about it. And so now you want me to pay $100 or something. It's fine. It's only $100. But to pay for you to, who's doing this test? Who's behind this? And how do you know where I'm from? And so I, I think I need to do more research on how these tests are done and like really get some more information about that. Cause I'm not, I just don't feel so willing to say, here's my DNA. I've had many friends that done it and I'm like, okay, so how does it make you feel? I'm more so I've, I don't know if I'll just travel more and maybe try to understand more things about who I am. And maybe that has a lot to do with maybe anatomy and a lot of different things, spiritual feelings, practices. Maybe I'll just find that. And I'm sort of more towards that process. Then yeah, I just don't feel comfortable. And how dare you make me pay? If you have this information, it is only accessible through this capitalistic market. That's a problem. That's a problem. For me, it's like, you're going to tell me where I'm from. So many problems with that. It feels like another form of oppression to me. When did you realize that you were African? Oh, I actually have a neat story about this. I was definitely young, I think between five or seven. And my dad's mother, my grandmother and her sisters, I think four of them, they went on a pilgrimage to West Africa, Ghana, Senegal, Gambia. And I'm not sure they did any tests, but when they do tell the story, I haven't spent much time with them recently, but when they tell the story, they talk about it as if it was like returning home. And so my grandmother brought back all of these African garments for the kids, of course. And we don't really understand, but I just thought it was like so wonderful. She went there. So I'm like, we're African. We've got these like African garments. Nobody was talking about what it meant to be African or anything. All I knew is that she went to Africa and she brought us back these clothes. And from that day in my mind as a child, I was like, there's something African about me or she would have never went there as a kid. And so I think that memory that moment stuck with me. Most often when I'm in 
different countries in Africa and I'm having conversations with people from that country, right? We always get into this discourse about African-Americans and our connection and our ties back to the continent. Usually these discussions or these dialogues end with my colleagues, my friends, my always saying like, no, you're African. Like no matter if you can't trace it, you can't do this, like we are literally the same. You have the same sense of belonging. So yes, there's this frustration and challenges, but you come from here. So get over it. <laughs> you know, get over it. Like, on est ensemble, comme on dit tous les temps, on est ensemble. We are, we're together, we're the same. Don't be broken down by that history. And so I always feel most connected, and most African when I am on the continent. Definitely not in the U.S. Like I feel like the moment I step off the plane in the U.S., there's something that makes me not even feel human there sometimes. <laughs> it's just all these boxes that come up. And, and to me, what it means to be African also is to be in community. So when you're, the absence of community somehow really creates a disconnect from that feeling of feeling African to me. I think I do have questions about what I call it is this gap, this lack of dialogue on the part of everyone living on the continent and everyone living and situating themselves within African-American Black identity in the U.S. I think there's a lack of education on what's happening on both ends. I think a lot of questions come to mind because, yeah, we are like completely suffering. But sometimes even when I talk about the suffering that's happening in the U.S. with some of my friends on the continent, we do get into these big heated discussions where I feel like it's just my observation. And I try to ask questions around this observation and emotion that comes up is that it is so bad with like police brutality and just the oppressive forces really wreaking havoc on people of color and Black people, especially in the U.S., every day. It's consistent, it is strategic, and it's sickening. But you'll still have some people who are like, but you live in the U.S. So there's still this like, yeah, it's bad, but you also have some sort of privilege or you can't just look at the suffering separate from it being the U.S. And so that makes me actually sad because it's like the severity or it's not taken as serious, I would say. And like me being situated, like when I was in Burkina and violence everywhere in every country that I've been in, I feel outraged. And it has nothing to do with like your privilege or how you're situated in this community or in this structure, in this system. It's like, no, there is violence happening here. This is horrible. It's looked at just in its own part. It's not attached to anything else. I'm like, no, this is just horrible. And I'm here and I don't agree with this. I find when we are in dialogue, it's more like in the same breath, they can talk about the suffering, some of my friends of African-Americans in the U.S., but then also there's always something that comes up about the privilege. It's almost like you got away though. Like, how bad is it really? It's like, no, it's actually horrible. It's actually quite bad. But they also haven't heard that. So it's like, who leaves America? African-Americans like, yeah, I'm going to the continent. First of all, if you don't speak French, you're not going to hardly any West African countries. And so I think with the history of colonization, too, was strategic along with slavery. It like really has divided us. So it's like, where are the points of connection? African-Americans, what? You can go to Ghana. I mean, you can go to a couple of countries, English speaking countries, but that's about it. You're limited in how much knowledge. Then it's also very expensive. So you're living in poverty in the U.S., you can't afford the ticket. You're living in poverty on the continent in Africa, you can't afford the ticket. So I think we need like these virtual communities or alliances, which I 
believe like this podcast is serving as a platform for that. Like, let's open up the door. Everyone's invited. Bring your coffee, bring your tea, bring whatever you want. Bring that dish you just made. Somebody over there eating whatever. It's like, just show up and share. And I think that's where it begins, that building and sustaining community that we've always been a part of. But we're living under the illusion that it doesn't exist. Because the moment you're in person, you're like, wow, that's my brother. Like, literally, look at my uncle over there about to get on the train. Is that my uncle again with that beer? You know, you're like, you see your family, you see the connection. Everyone doesn't get to witness that. And so you can't have the connection without the experience. I think there have to be more programs that foster like, no, we're going. Raise the money. It's, you gotta be raising money for so many other causes. Raise the money and go. And stop living with this generalization that, oh my gosh, it's so dangerous. No, that's because that's how the media portrays it. But if I look at a conflict, like when there was a coup in Burkina, and I look at what just happened in Buffalo, New York, violence in all of its forms, it's violence. It's extreme violence everywhere. I really don't like that sometimes is the African-American discourse. We're like, oh my God, those people are so poor. And you're looking at them like, we are poor. We are poor. Do you know how much we are paying for healthcare? Healthcare that doesn't even help us? We are poor emotionally and spiritually. And so living in the different countries that I have in Africa, I would say the greatest thing that it has given me or restored unto me is that emotional like strength and power. You can't get wealthier than that because then there's something that taps into your intellect that's like, okay, even when you're in a place like America, you're like, okay, uh, we live in food deserts and all this, but let me just tap back into that local knowledge of my ancestors are like herbalism. Okay, I'm going to heal myself because obviously their their system will never support me and they just are actually creating a system that just keeps me in poverty. So how can I use my emotional wealth and intelligence and knowledge to create these systems of my own that will eventually make me wealthy on both ends and they won't be able to do anything about it? So I think you got to buy out of the system and buy in to who you really are. And what comes with that, which, what practices, and it has a lot to do with lifestyle, food, health, mental health. And so for me, it's important to tap into that. What does it mean for you to be African? What does it mean? Um... I thought about this. I think my first instinct in response to the question is like, I'm still longing to know what it feels like. But as I mentioned earlier, I was like my time in Burkina, what that taught me, okay, to be African is to be courageous, to be compassionate. Like Guinea, uh, it meant to be supportive to others, to myself. Cameroon, really Cameroon has taught me a lot. It taught me what it means to be strong and powerful, which those combined together, you're unstoppable, proud, and mostly really in touch with nature as a part of this whole system, as a part of who we are. Also, when I was in Senegal, I went to Gori Island, Gori, and I was at the door of no return. And I really did feel like some ancestors were really present at that place. And it meant to return. It meant to never stop searching. To be African is to always be expansive in your mind, in your heart, in your spirit, not to be limited. And then also really just to be confident in knowing that you really embody like this deepest, deepest, most profound love that exists. Because if you look at the history of how we've been oppressed and how we continue to be oppressed, the compassion that we're able to show to the oppressor is unbelievable. It's magic. It's pure magic. 
it cannot be explained to know that you are that deepest, that deepest and most profound love that really heals everything and that really makes everything flow in the world. And I think when you can tap into it, when you find it and you do come to peace with these identity crises and all of that, you know how to situate yourself in the world. You know how to be. I guess also I would say to be African is, you know, there's a knowing, there's an infinite wisdom and knowledge. And so you can't be defeated at all. Like there's infinite knowledge and wisdom and you can activate that in every part of your life, every experience until the end. And then you can keep activating it even when you're not here. Somehow you show back up with this infinite knowledge and wisdom and you you push it through others. And I think to me, my experience has, I'm coming to know being African, it means that to me. How do you share your Africanness with your family and your relatives? In the beginning, when I first went to Burkina Faso, everyone was a little worried because some people have this perspective of, is it dangerous? And then they look up online and the internet says, it's dangerous. Google says, yes, confirmed, dangerous, you know? And then it shows all the conflicts that have happened like over the course of 20 years and somehow everyone thinks that happened today. Anyway, I just began to do what I observed, tell the stories of how I was experiencing people, telling the stories of who these people are. And it had so much to do with what they gave to me emotionally, how they taught me to be in community. It had less to do with what their ethnicity was or which part they were from in, in Burkina. No, it was like, let me tell you what African people are teaching me. Let me tell my stories of community with them, but let me also tell you their stories. And I think it's important to leverage um, their stories because otherwise they won't be shared. So as much as it about me sharing what it means to be African, what I'm coming to know, I think it's equally important to share the stories of those who are there and can teach us so much more about who we are and where we come from. You said that you're African, you're also American, you're a woman. How do you navigate between these identities? It's quite a challenge, actually, connecting all the pieces of me, right? Most recently, that was in 2020, I wrote a book and I published my first book. And it's this poetry book called Freedom at Day Zero. And in this book, quite honestly, is me journeying from age three all the way to when I was 28. And recounting all of the things that had happened to me and how they made me feel. So I was going through this really like emotional journey of understanding who I am. And so there's a part I arrive at and I'm like, yes, I'm this Black woman. And then I understand what it means to be a Black woman. And what I'm finding is my first journey inward to self, back to self, unto self was like, okay, I'm this Black woman. What does it mean to be a Black woman? Courageous, strong, humble. And it's the same things that when I now discovering, you know, being prompted to ask myself the deeper question of what it means to be African, they align, they align. And so the American part is what gets me. And I still haven't figured that out more so because I battle with this. It's almost like we're only allowed to be this 
much American. And what does that mean? What does that actually mean? I have this passport and I can travel freely around the world. Yes, I do have access to certain opportunities that others don't in my community and abroad. And so these things that are tied to my American is Americanism or whatever, like to be American, they work within this system of capitalism and this system that sometimes is oppressive and exploits people. That sometimes the violence of it is challenging to navigate. So I'm still learning to find the good in what it means to be American. And I think when I am in community and when I'm back in the U.S., I'm going to search for that because it does exist. And I think so often you can look at an oppressive structure, an oppressive history and just, you know, throw it all down. But no, actually, America was built on the backs of enslaved Africans and African-Americans. And so that, too, is America. Whatever they want to call it, they can call me African-American. But what history can I draw from and say that become my narrative about what it means to be American? And so I'm in search for that part. And then I think as I discover that, I'll see how it ties into this Black woman, Black African women, because I think that is already aligned very beautifully. So what do you love about being African? What do I love? I think I would first say what I love about being African is really just being connected to so much beauty and so much kindness and compassion. Also, I'm just like, to be in touch with just the spirits, because I feel like dancing in Africa or is way different. I don't care what you put on. You could put it on blues, jazz, whatever. Everything that was influenced by African music. But you are in touch with something so divine. And so to me, my favorite part really is just like being in community and dancing. You are literally going to a whole nother place. Time travel. And you brought a lot of people with you. And it's just the most pleasant, purest form of joy that I've ever experienced. What a beautiful journey, Faith. Thank you so, so much for sharing your gifts with the world and for trusting me with your story. And thank you, Shishi, of season one, for introducing this podcast to Faith. Sound design of this episode, Sonar. This is We Are All Africans. See you next week, en français.